calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter, one of the hosts of the Digital Folklore Podcast, and this is Digital Folklore Unplugged. If you've been following us for a while, you know that we just kicked off season two of our main show, but that doesn't mean that we're gonna stop these unplugged editions. In our main format, we really pull out thematic elements from our experts that match the overall narrative frame that we've set. But these unplugged editions allow us to ditch all the fancy production, all the storytelling, and bring you the very raw or only slightly edited interviews with our experts. On today's episode, my co-host Mason and I had the chance to sit down with Paul Prater. Hello, my name is Paul Prater. Paul is an extremely multifaceted guy. He's a lawyer, a musician, a mentalist, a bizarre entertainer, an author, and he also collects ghost stories and leads haunted tours. Mason and I had a ton of fun on this interview, and we know that you'll enjoy it as well. Oh, and just a reminder, if you're one of our Patreon supporters, you get access to these interviews a few days before they go out into our public podcast feed, and you often get a few extra tidbits that didn't make the main feed because they might not be as family-friendly or they were a slightly different tone than the rest of the interview, but they are still hugely, hugely interesting and give a lot of insight into the personality and the variety of expertise that these experts have. And Paul's interview has some gems, I'll tell you. Okay, with that, let's get unplugged. Hello, my name is Paul Prater. I am a mentalist. I am an attorney. I'm an author. I'm a creator. I'm a ghost tour guide. I do all kinds of fun stuff. Usually when people say, what do you do? My answer is fun. That's what I do is have fun. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Tell Just describe the type of mentalism and bizarre, uh, bizarre storytelling that you do so that people can get an idea of what those words mean. Um, a lot of people haven't heard of bizarre, and so they will just have a big, you know, fuzzy mark in their mind. So, yeah, d describe some of those facets of the you know, type of person you are and the type of things that you do. Sure. So I have kind of a few different branches of the mentalism that I do. The first one is corporate work. And obviously for that, you have to be conscious of 
what you're putting out there. I have to talk to my clients and make sure that they're okay with certain presentational angles. But for that, I typically just play up more of the attorney side of me and I weave that into the shows because as corporations are hiring me, I'm relating to them professional to professional. I'm, I'm one of their peers and I think that comes across as more personable. That's one of the things that regardless of what I do, I've had a lot of people describe my style as it feels like we're just hanging out with you, having a conversation. So I really do strive for that in my shows to be relatable. And um, what you would see at a corporate type show would be me being able to reach into people's brains and pull out little tidbits of information, but also take them back on trips through time, back to their childhood. And I have my audience members do a lot of the discovery in the show. They actually create a lot of the uh, outcomes. It's not me. I do not take on the role of this all-knowing super smart, smarter than you guy. I don't think that's very relatable. <laughs> and uh, I want to stay away from that. Now, on the other side, I also do things like Bizarre Magic, which I'll, I'll explain. Um, it's taking darker elements, sometimes having to do with the occult, sometimes having to do with just ghost stories or just the creepiness in general, and putting a story and a presentation to that. But I still do the same approach and that I want to be personable and I want me and my audience members to go on this journey of discovery together where we find out things either about them or about uh, a story or a mystery. That's what the bizarre magic side is. So it's not a ta-da, look at me kind of thing. And really, if people start applauding wildly, I feel like I've probably done something wrong. I more want stunned silence than applause. Yeah. D describe one of the effects just so people can get an idea, um, put some teeth in it, into it. Sure. One of the ones that I enjoy that I actually, this is done on ghost tours. We have these, these old cards that it's hard to tell how old they are. It's they're, they're recreations of something medieval. They have to be, but they're teaching ideas. For instance, you know, people couldn't read. So you have images to teach. And a person, whoever wants to be the person who helps out, I say they're the mayor of our little medieval village. They take these, these nine cards, mix them up, lay two hands out into a hand for me, hand for them, and a wild card in the middle. They get to pick which hand's mine, which hand is theirs, and they turn over cards. And each time we turn over one, we've eliminated this, this curse. They see another curse on there, and there's some pretty horrific stuff on there. You know, one of them is somebody getting sawn in half from the butt to the head while hanging upside down. You know, pretty horrific <laughs> images. <laughs> and uh but they're eliminating them when we get down to three cards i ask them do you want to trade your card for mine do you want to trade your card for the wild card they make all the decisions totally within their control i don't do anything and at the end the only card that's not a horrible curse is the blessings and that's the card that they're left with nice but again that's when they say how did you do i get that a lot how did you do that i said i didn't do anything i made no choices i didn't mix the cards i didn't deal the cards i made no choices you did this not me so then um Bizarre magic, from your perspective, probably utilizes a lot of the same mechanical methods as traditional yes. magic, but has a different presentational frame. Yes. Even my shows, my corporate shows, largely follow the same, use the same methods and have the same basic structures. The framework's different. Obviously, you don't use things like tarot cards or creepy image cards or what have you. You know, you just, you just change that. But I always ask my corporate clients, too, what their level of comfort is. Mm -hmm. Every, you know, every corporation has a different culture. Some are very straight laced and some say, no, I think that's awesome. Yeah. And I also ask them, do I need to be G, P, G, or R? And I've had some say, you can be X. I'm like, I don't do those kind of shows, but. 
<laughs> or I will if the price is right. But anyway, uh, <laughs> exactly. No, I don't. I don't tend to do anything aside from maybe PG thirteen at worst. But you know, I, I clarify that with clients too, and that helps me decide what I'm going to present. Obviously, is what the client wants if they're paying. Now, if it's my show, I do what I want, and people are paying to come see me, and that's a whole different thing. Yeah, absolutely. And they're. All of my performances that I do that I put on are absolutely in the bizarre magic realm. Um, so lots of creepiness and, uh, but they're still fun. There's still humor in right. them. It's very audience engaged audience members participate in every routine. I do literally every one. Yeah. And I've, uh, I've been to a few of your shows and nothing that you do is like off putting or uninviting or does or anything that would alienate an audience. No. It's super, super relatable. But you're like inviting them into this different way of thinking and this kind of you're, you're inviting them into your house for a little bit to you know, show them some of the cool things that you're aware of. Talk a little bit about some of the other interesting presentational stuff you do. I know you've done like bed of nails, you've done blockhead routines. Yeah. How do those fit in and, and where does that take an audience? Well, so the the very first full stage show I presented was a mix of much more straightforward magic, not not bizarre. There was some, but it was a mix of magic and sideshow. So yeah, in that show, I would uh, lift an anvil with my teeth and swing it around. I would do the human blockhead, hammering the nail into the nose. I did bed of nails where I created a bed of nails, uh, built my own and uh, lay on that, have someone stand on me. And then I also did hand and animal trap, which is another one of those old sideshow bits. And I did it partially just because, I mean, it interests me. I thought it was, it yeah. was fascinating, you know, as, as a kid, I, I still remember it was crazy. There was an empty field and they set up a canvas old style circus and there were carnies and tiny Tim played tiptoe through the tulips there at that <laughs> circus. It was so weird. It just left a really strong impression on me. And, uh, I wanted to learn how those people did those things. And, uh, I've always been very curious. So I put that in and the show was more of a, I wouldn't say a circus theme, but lean that way. It was called auditorium. So it was like the idea of all these uh, odd things you may see. Mm -hmm. And so I structured it that way. And and I guess to answer the question of what does it do to an audience, it gets a very strong reaction. I can tell you that. Um, The human blockhead, especially when people see that, there's there's just this kind of like, uh, you know, it's a visceral (laughs) reaction. And I liked that when I was younger, but as I've developed my shows, that's, that's not what I'm going for now. Mm-hmm. And, um, a lot of the sideshow stuff is just, I mean, it's real. So just getting up and down off the bed of nails, you have to be careful. I, I don't really relish people standing on me on nails anymore. <laughs> you know, as I've gotten older. I just have just moved away from that stuff. Um, I, I still love it, but I, I, yeah. I, and I also think it's really preserving an art that I felt like was dying. Um, mm. now burlesque has really come back with a huge resurgence. And I mean, that's not recent. That's you know 15 years old now, but so was my first show. So, right. <laughs> you know, about that time is when this all seemed to be coming back. And I'm glad to see that the sideshow stuff is, uh, not only still alive, but seems to be flourishing. I'm curious about, I know there's generally a link between, um, magic performance and creepiness. Um, but then there, there's obviously a distinct line when you lean more into the creepy or the the horror aspects of it. And I'm curious right. what drew you to that part of it, if it was mostly the reaction from the audience or or what about it is is enthralling. No, as sad as it is to say, when I first started, so my background briefly, when I was young, I liked magic. And then I really got out of it for most of, of my teenage and early adult years. I would still do, you know, some mentalism here and there, uh, open mic nights or what have you. 
but it didn't really grab me until I found this bizarre magic world. I didn't know that that mm. existed before. And so I did not think about my audience. Frankly, I just thought about me and what <laughs> do I like and what do I enjoy? That is not how I think at all. Now, every routine I do, I think about audience first. What is the audience? What do I want them to experience? And that's usually, maybe that goes back to an earlier question. I think that's the strongest definition of the bizarre magic to me is I want to make my audience feel something. Mm. And I get to decide in each act what that something is. It's not always fear. That that makes for a monotonous show. You know, sometimes it's humor. Sometimes it's, oh, that's sweet. But there's a lot of creepy in it too, you know. Um, but no, that's where I, I, and I came to that just because I've always loved horror. I've always loved yeah creepy books you know when i was maybe 10 years old 10 or 11 for christmas one of my favorite gifts was the complete works of edgar Allan poe you know i just <laughs> i loved that stuff and my parents were very strict about it so that's probably why i love it more because i rebelled ah <laughs> uh, it's the forbidden fruit bit oh yeah. yeah yeah my dad's a baptist minister mom's very conservative um and i couldn't wear iron maiden shirts or anything with a skull on it or listen to that devil music and you know that's See, I'm wearing my Metallica shirt. And <laughs> I was just about to say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still love metal. Uh, still play metal, you know? Yeah. So, but no, that was the really, the reason why I got into it is because I liked it and it really grabbed me and pulled me back into magic because like I say, it was something I'd gotten away from and gotten mm. out of. And um, when my daughter was born, I just needed to be home more and I'm not good at sitting still or being home. And yeah. I pulled out Mark Wilson's complete course in magic from when I was a kid and kind of started playing with cards and coins and then found bizarre magic and went, this, this is it. This is yeah. it for me. More of our interview with Paul Prater after this. Hey, listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here. And I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much. But I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. Allergies, and long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Welcome back. 
You know, I think in 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 horror and even in some of the uh, more traditional mentalism stuff, there's this idea of exploring something that's kind of you know taboo or off limits or piercing the veil in some way, getting to forgotten or hidden or um, that forbidden knowledge bit of it. I think is super super appealing for those of us that have kind of gone into that. And I think it's really, really interesting to take people on on that journey into this world that they're less aware of or that they don't want to believe exists in some way and they keep to put pushing off or that their parents have protected them from. Um, right. And so I can definitely see how you how you resonate with that for you when you think about because I know that you make your own props a lot of time as well. And when when you're doing that, you're kind of aiming for a certain feel. You're trying to say, how do I lean into the creepiness with this? If you were to to think about the things that define creepiness for you, the the things that comprise that, what what is creepy when when you're thinking about it? Well, I think at at the heart, creepy is well, there's a few ways to define that, I guess. I think part of it is just the unexpected, but particularly the unknown. That in and of itself mm-hmm. is creepy. So even talking about Aleister Crowley or tarot cards or Ouija boards is creepy to people because it's the unknown. There's there's no explanation. There's no understanding. Yeah. You know, um, I think that's that's where some of it comes from. But when you're looking at props or talking about props, for whatever reason, everyone associates old with creepy. I, I don't I don't know. Um Sometimes I have made concessions for buyers where I age things way more than I think they should be aged. Uh, Mm. But that idea of this old water stained thing seems to be creepy to people. uh, Some of the props I like working with are things that have to do with death and that in and of themselves Mm. makes them creepy. For instance, like toe tags or uh, Victorian cabinet cards, which aren't necessarily creepy, but you know, the pictures often look very strange because photography wasn't a snap and you're done. So you yeah. get these blurred faces and weird images. And uh, I worked with death cards too, or the the funeral cards that they use as well and um, have used originals or made recreations of those as well. And I think those have an inherent interest to us nowadays, especially because I feel like humans are very separated from death now. Death mm-hmm. in and of itself is a mystery now. We don't We don't have a dead body in our home for a week before we have a funeral. You know, we don't take pictures of the dead relatives, usually. Um, I think that just our modern human separation from death is what makes death so creepy. Ah, interesting. That's just, that's something I think about a lot, but I feel like I will end up dovetailing into a whole different <laughs> realm of conversation. Yeah. Well, maybe we can go there in just a minute, but I want to just see if you have anything in this other area. You mentioned sometimes just old is creepy for people. When you think about some of the um, some of the current media that is kind of leaning into creepy. One of the one of the themes that keeps coming up uh, over and over is like older technology. You know, like if you think about Stranger Things, right? it's VHS cassettes and 480p kind of interlaced monitors where you can see the lines and everything right. um, or faded colors. What is it about that kind of older tech, that analog bit? What makes that strike us as creepy? I think part of that too is very generational. Again, young people aren't familiar with that tech at all. And it it does seem, and it is primitive compared to what we have now. We've had just such this a huge, you know, every every year a new iPhone comes out that's bigger and better. It just feels like technology's gotten so far advanced just in the time, yeah. you know, I've been alive. I mean, half that technology didn't even exist when we were kids. And then our kids, my kid has never not known the internet. Mm-hmm. My kid's never not known a cell phone. It's 
pretty amazing when you think about yeah. you have this little device in your pocket that has all of the world's knowledge in it that it's unreal to me so i think when you go back and look at wow that's what tv looked like that's what video looked like it really looked like that i, I think again it's just removed from them it's foreign it seems so ancient you know maybe a lot of that stuff when you talk about old tech and the creepiness of it does have to do directly with who you are as a person and what age you're at probably mm-hmm. um but you know we used it when when i was young i think about poltergeist and the little girl with her hands up on the tv with the fuzz that's a very yep. strong image you know with that television communicating to her yeah that's that's probably always been around that technology can somehow be evil <laughs> and i yeah. often say I, I hate the fact that we have the internet and i love the fact that we have the internet yeah there's um uh a touchstone that's come up a lot as we've been talking with a couple of different people about analog horror specifically. And it's that it was kind of the last era of media being embodied in a physical form in a way that's interesting. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I'm constantly on this back and forth. Do I throw away all of my CDs or do I keep them? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've got probably a thousand CDs and I'm like, do I just keep these because everything's online now? Or yeah. yeah. And I thought, I remember distinctly thinking when I got CDs, this is it. This is the embodiment, the perfect embodiment of the media. There will never be anything different or better. You know, naive thinking, obviously, but I was also, you know, what, 22. They didn't even last that long in retrospect. If you you really think about it, CDs were pretty short-lived. They really were. Well, we keep finding things like in 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 our quest to create the perfect version of whatever that is, you know, you've got like. VHS and Laserdisc and then DVD. And what you end up finding out is is usually that the version that consumers have ended up adopting is the more inferior version of that thing that there was always, right. you know, VHS had uh, Betamax that was the, right. the competing version. It was actually better, but... Um, DVD had Blu-ray. Yeah, DVD had Blu-ray. Which is a little more popular. You know, CDs had mini-disc. Uh, associated right. Mini-disc had way higher fidelity in a lot of ways. And now even we've standardized on MP3, but you find out that they're actually way higher uh, resolution and much more compressible file types that are out there as well. So you could get better fidelity, less space, but it's just not widely adopted yet. Right. That train of thought is going nowhere, but I was saying it extremely confidently. <laughs> it made me it made me think of something that I didn't really connect before. And it's that in, in the current era, we're kind of moving towards not owning anything. You know, like all of mm. these streaming services, you don't have that music. If that streaming service goes away, it's not like you can pull it off your shelf. Right. And so I wonder if part of the nostalgia attached to the analog horror, even for people who didn't experience it, was the very idea that you could own and and have as personal property, these pieces of media that meant something to you. It could also be that that thing is potentially degrading as well. It's sitting there, it's it's aging like a body ages. And when you put it back in, it's not the thing that you remember. It's not the clear memory that you had about this. It is, is, you know, it is fuzzy. It's kind of ugly. It's, um, you know, the color of the movies that we used to watch and think were high technicolor. They don't look as crisp and clear as we remember. No. Even even DVDs of movies that are now 15, 20 years old. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, but, yeah, uh, the, you know, the mentioning of owning things is why I was very resistant for a long time to streaming music. I, I kept buying CDs, I mean, as recently as a few years ago, mm. because I thought, well, hey, for something I can't even own. Yeah. Yeah. But I have shifted that mindset now, and, and now I've got that problem with my books. If I turn my camera around, I've got shelves full of books, and what do I do with those? Right. No, same. It's a little spooky to think about, probably off topic for the show, but just to think about not owning anything because it seems like we're really trending towards that. Leasing cars, streaming media, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, once they get the driverless cars down solid, then you don't need to own a car. You can just borrow one. Yeah. Yeah. Order order it like Uber. If they're all self-driving cars, then it's not an issue. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah why, why pay tens of thousands of dollars for this thing that you use maybe an hour a day and then sits right. vacant 23 hours? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can see the mindset behind that. Think about parking lots no longer necessary, really. <laughs> yeah. Right. If they all just go back to this garage or I guess circle the block or whatever, just waiting for right. somebody. Just constantly yeah. working. Yeah. Anyway, that, I'm sure that is off topic. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, but you could think of the other side of that, though. There's a dystopia that lurks on the other side of not being able to own anything and, and right. sharing everything. Because what happens when that sharing possibility gets taken away, either by the loss of a tech, you know, loss of some kind of connector that makes that possible or the degeneration of society in some way? Right. It's where, yeah, it's where convenience, control and intention meet. <laughs> That it, it really could go in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Now you really have a haves and haves nots type of society because you have the people that could afford and it was a luxury to actually own the thing that was there right. versus everybody else who was you know, renting it or leasing it. And now you sever that ability to do it. And now you've created two entirely different classes and no middle class. Right. Uh, anyway. Yeah, that's totally different than <laughs> yeah. anything we need to talk about. Um, okay. Something I do want to touch on related to what we were telling. And I think would be really good for the, for the episode was like storytelling is obviously a big part of everything you're doing, Paul. So like, how do you approach telling a story? Like it's, it's an art form in and of itself. I've spoken with a professional storyteller once and didn't go very deep into talking shop, but I think it's fascinating. Like, what is your approach to that? So my, my approach generally, if I'm scripting a routine and I do script my routines, I, I treat each, each piece that I do within the whole show as like a mini play that supports the thesis or main point of the play itself. So I start with what do I want my audience to experience? What do, what emotion do I want to bring out in this piece? And that gives me the direction I need as far as scripting goes. And the second part of it though, to answer that question is you just have to work and rework and rework your stories. So one of the the side interesting things I, I did that dovetails in with what we're talking about when I did hand in an animal trap in that first show, I thought, why would you put your hand in an animal trap? That's just a, you're a dumb <laughs> Why would you put your hand in an animal trap? So I needed to come up with a story that would explain that. And I, almost all of my stories touch on reality, actual things that have happened and often back to my childhood or my past, because I think, you know, at least Americans, we often have a sh- shared childhood upbringing, you know, Christmas yeah. was excitement. And anyway, to get back to the point. I talked about my Uncle Avery, who went to World War II, and he had this silver coin, and if I could grab it out of his hand, then he would let me have it. And once I hit 12 or 13, I thought, all right, this year I'm fast enough. I've been doing martial arts. I, I, I can grab this coin. And I got up there, and he had Park, or not Parkinson's, uh, ALS. Mm. And I didn't know that. You know, The family didn't tell me. I wasn't prepared for that, and I couldn't, I couldn't play that game with him anymore. So what did I come up with? I had an animal trap laying around. If you're not fast, you get hurt. So the audience thinks I'm going to demonstrate how I can snatch this coin out of the animal trap. And when I put my hand in there and it goes off, you know, it's really this kind of sentimental ride. And then people are like, oh, man, did he just mess up? And I just say, you know, I never did figure out how to get the coin out of that trap. But I'm sure Uncle Avery's looking at me laughing. So that that gives you the idea of, of kind of my storytelling and my my approach to it. Now, a side note, there's a thing called, there, it was a thing called Tales from the South. It was on NPR, and I was on NPR with that story from Tales mm. from the South. 
And there is no animal trap portion. It's just the story. Ah. And that's how I want to approach my shows that any story I tell doesn't need a trick or a, a punch. It's the right. story is sufficient. Now, if there's something extra, you know, that, that helps drive the point of the story home, then yeah, I, right. I, I love it. But yeah, my focus has always been on the story. And you're really consciously playing with expectations there because you you go into something not knowing what it's going to be. And then you make this sort of aspirational story that then has this sad sentimental twist. And then right. it ends up with a shock. And then you end up with humor. Right. So there's definitely that that arc. You have this established pattern, expectation, break of the pattern. And I, I that's that's really that's really good. If you guys have any interest in seeing that, it's on YouTube. It's called The End of Summer Tales from the South or Tales from, or just put my name in YouTube. It'll pop up because I was yeah. actually on there twice. I, I did their best of the year as well. Oh, that's awesome. So one other part, and I'll, I want to get to this real quick too, and then we're going to take a turn just into the um, the haunted tours and things like legend tripping and, and uh, legends in general. But part of your storytelling that goes into your shows and part of the storytelling that goes into the tour is the crafting of your persona. Right. You have a very specific persona that you literally, I mean, you're still yourself, but you kind of adorn yourself in a different persona whenever you're doing some of these shows. Can you describe the importance of that as far as tone setting, um, storytelling and, and the way that that sets expectation and, you know, what's, what's, what's the reasoning for all of that? Sure. I think, Particularly with the Bizarre Magic shows, I, I think your set dressing, which includes yourself primarily, actually, mm-hmm. is super important. The way I've described it is if you paid a lot of money to go see a play and it was drawn with crayons on, you know, on boxes, you'd be pretty disappointed. So I start with just my dress. I tend to dress very nicely, um, you know, not a T-shirt and jeans, right. obviously. Um, I think that's the important first start. What I want is people to have this idea that, oh, this is something, this is something classy. This is something. And also I like to wear things that are a little bit odd. So that way it, you know, throws people off. Sometimes it's just like spiky loafers or velvet Mm -hmm. loafers with skulls on them or just, you know, cufflinks that have post face on them. I have those, you know, just something like that. I think right off the bat, you start to set the expectation that it's not a goofy magic show. You know, there's no, there's no sequins, there's no mm-hmm. top hat or any of that kind of, that kind of stuff. I think also when you're dressed that way, I'm the one running the show. As I mentioned, other people really make things happen, but it also establishes still, I'm the one in charge here. Yeah. I'm, I'm dressed nicer than everybody. Almost always. Um, I'm wearing something no one else wears. Uh, so I think that is important. I want a certain it's hard to describe this, but a certain aloofness without being aloof, because I want to be very, very personable with people. I want it to feel yeah. like, yeah, we're just sitting around in my living room. But yet at the same time, I'm the one in control here. I'm the one in charge here. Yeah, I think about it as other. I mean, a lot of the the fashion choices that you make make me think of like Victorian era. Right. That that type of spooky or gothic that's now entered the modern world. So this person is obviously other and has some kind of mystique associated with that, some kind of hidden or forbidden knowledge that they're willing to share. And that naturally puts you in charge, not only because right. the, you know, the, the dress is, is more expensive or nicer or different, but is so foreign to what most people see on the street today. Right. And I don't, and I don't go directly for a recreation of a Victorian outfit, but you're very right. It's Victorian-esque. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, like a, a cravat and a 
vest and a velvet jacket. But, you know, most of the things that I, I buy that I perform in are not any kind of recreation of period pieces or anything. They're just, yeah. It's, yeah. I think it, it gives the, the modern person that feeling, even though that, you know, you're not trying to recreate that per se, right. but it's like, oh, this is a, this person has knowledge of a different time. Right. Yeah. If you ask most people what was men's Victorian dress, they wouldn't even be able to define that anyhow. You know, they would go, I don't know, top <laughs> right. hats and tails or <laughs> yeah. they really, yeah, most people don't have an idea. So as long as I'm giving that, that feel, yeah. Mm-hmm. And ghost tours are the same way. You know, I mean, I'm wearing modern clothes. The only thing I bought that's a recreation of anything is I got a very nice brocade vest and a puff tie because you ah. can't find puff ties or good brocade vests. Right. But, um, of course, the other side with that is the vest is a little too short because the pants came up, you know, over your belly button. Right. Back then, so. And you're not wanting to go that detailed, right? right. You, you don't no. want, you don't want the super high waisted pants. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I put on COVID weight. I can't get those over my belly. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get back in the gym before I do that option. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Mason. You had a question. No, you're good. I have a question that it's 50, 50, whether it would land in the episode, but I'm just so curious when you have an, a, a routine and you're, you're fully prepared and you're actually in the moment doing it. I'm curious where your head is at, because obviously you've analyzed all of the expectation building and things like that. Do you find that during a performance, whether it's a tour or a routine, you're analytical mind is going sort of separate as you just uh, muscle memory through it? Or do you feel more present in the exact moment you're in? No, it's actually a good question that you ask. And the reason why is I try to create routines that force me to be in the moment. Um, A friend of mine who did sound and lights for a lot of my shows, but does not know magic. He described my shows as a choose your own adventure book. They can make Mm -hmm. choices, but they're always going to end up where you want them to. But what that means is I have to pay close attention. I have to really be aware of what's going on. And I do that on purpose because, yes, I have found myself, even with the routines I do, I did a, a month-long run in Utah where I was doing three shows a day, six days a week. I could absolutely think of anything I wanted to and still do my routine because yeah. I had it down so cold. But I don't like that. I really like to be present in the moment because I do love performing and I love people. And I love, you know, I often remind myself, Look at what you're doing. This is your mm. your dream. You're doing what you always wanted to do. Be aware of it. Savor it. So no, I try to be very in the moment. But yeah, I can absolutely zone out. I mean, mm. I've ghost tours. I've told the same story night after night after night after night. Especially the storytelling part. Yeah, I can totally zone out and tell that story. Interesting, because it's I'm I'm very into um, like improv performance, and that is always a balance of analytical versus being present. Because listening is a big part of it. So when it's something that you've that is yep. rote, but also interactive. That's, that's gotta be an interesting blend. Yeah, it is. And there, when my mind starts wandering off to snap back into the moment, you know, I, I catch myself doing that and go, no, be, here. Be, be aware, be in this moment. This is a wonderful moment. Be here. Yeah. Cool. That's super cool. But admittedly, when you do the same thing, I like, it was great doing that run in Utah, but man, three shows a night, six days a week. I mean, it, it eventually does get to be a grind. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. So I, I, but I remind myself this isn't forever. I, I can imagine the high points in that are the way that you get to interact with whatever the participant is, right? It's like, how how can I either find a funny way to play off this person or make their personality shine or make this feel different than the other thing because this is a different person and they're going to have oh, different words and reactions and so on. Right. And I don't treat my spectators like props. You know, so many yeah. mentalists do. They're just up there to do this rote action. I'll always start out with, what's your name? Where are you from? Thank you for coming out tonight. I personalize them and humanize them. And then almost every routine, I have a question for them. And so, yeah, that's where I get to play off that. Like one of them on ghost tours, 
Which do you think controls stronger in life, fate or free will? And I love to hear people's responses. Yeah. And sometimes they're funny and I always have a follow up, you know, no matter what they say, I say, so did you buy your tickets here tonight or did someone else <laughs> buy your ticket? And then I always have fun with that with fate or free will. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's wicked. After the break, the conclusion of our interview with Paul Prager. Welcome back. Let's talk about the the ghost tours. Sure. So first thing, I want to talk about the mindset of somebody that decides to go to a ghost tour. So in folklore, there's this concept called legend tripping, which is, you know, you've heard about these, you know, interesting stories or phenomena, and almost as a rite of passage, you decide to go on this thing and participate in it, maybe because somebody dared you. You know, those things that we used to do in high school, somebody would say, there's an asi- you know, abandoned asylum on this hill, and if anybody goes in at 3 a.m. on a you know, third Tuesday of the month, they're going to die. They, they never right. return, and then everybody turns it into like a dare type of thing, um, and it becomes a rite of passage. I, I think that haunted tours kind of serve that function for you know, grown adults in a lot of ways, is you get to still participate in, in some of those things. So as, as you've seen the types of people that that come on these year after year are are there any um things that they've shared with you about what they're hoping to see or what they they want to experience with other people or just with the environment yeah it's it's pretty clear there's basically two groups that come on the tours you have the ghost people who are the believers Mm -hmm. who hope to see something or experience something and you have the people who are there just like yeah, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We understand this is all just in good fun. Yeah. And so I specifically cater to both of those groups on the tour. It's built that way to cater to both of those people because even before the ghost tours, I found that most of the people who came to my shows were women who brought their husbands who didn't want to be there mm-hmm. because I can do something they can't. And so I have a standard line I use right off the bat now. And uh, part of it is, you know, there's a bunch of you are wondering if I can really read your mind and blah, blah, blah. But my, my next line is there are a smaller number of you who are wondering if I'm single. And now, you know, you can see the men kind of bristle a little bit. And I go, if you're buying dinner and drinks, yes, I am. But my follow-up is there's a smaller number of you still who are wondering if I'm gay. If you're buying dinner and drinks, yes, I am. <laughs> and so... I get that laugh right off the bat. The men then relax and they're like, okay, now I can enjoy the show. So the ghost tours was the exact same way. It's relevant, you know, because women bring their husbands who are like, oh, this is all a bunch of crap. I don't believe in this. So we make it, I make it fun right off the bat. I cater to them and I say, I'm right at the beginning, I'm an attorney. I don't Mm -hmm. say that for the purpose of getting business though. You know, look me up if you need a good lawyer. I say that because it means I'm a skeptic and it means I dug in and learned the history behind these stories. And I'm going to share that history with you tonight. This is not made up. These are the true stories. This is the real history. So that way it really plays to, unfortunately, that's generally the split. That plays to the men, whereas the women want to hear about the ghost. Right. That's really cool. So um, to describe the tour experience and maybe share one of the more interesting stories, either about why you created it or one that you like to share. Just just to tuck into your yeah. question too, like the balance between history and like legend that goes into it. Right. So I'll, I'll start by saying I started the tours because a friend of mine, Ed Underwood, had started ghost tours in Jonesboro, and he had asked me to take over. This was 15 years ago, and I told him I just had no interest. He was a performer as well. That's mm-hmm. how we met. And he he pretty much talked me into it, and I loved it. And I wanted to create one here. Jonesboro mm-hmm. is obviously two hours away from Little Rock, right. and that was too far to drive. 
So I went to our history, well, the way it started actually, and I tell this story on the tour, is one of the stops, we were sitting at this bar, me and the owner, and he looks up at this window and goes, you know, people say they see a ghost up there. And it hit me, if there's one story, there have to be more stories. There's not just one ghost. Mm -hmm. So I went to the history commission and they were super helpful. And the historian there already had an interest in this. So he had ghost stories for me already. He had histories for me. He had photos for me. So he was really, really helpful in, uh, in getting that all set up. And then, um, one of my favorite stories, they're not all ghost stories. So, and to, and to answer that question about the, the split, it's much more history than it is ghost stories. Uh, one of the reviews I got this year said, you know, it's still a five-star review. So I'm happy. He goes, the stories might not be as creepy as you want, but I sure learned a lot. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, the history component's very big. And I say at the beginning, we're going to talk about the history, but you can't talk about the history without talking about the ghost because those stories are wrapped up in history. They're part of it. Mm. So, um, not every stop has a ghost story, but most of them do. Some of them are just interesting history, like Carrie Nation, you know, who would go and smash up bars and all that. She spoke in Argenta where I would do the tours where old church used to be and I educate people about Carrie Nation. A lot of people aren't familiar with her. And uh, I think, though, maybe my favorite story on the tour is the one I end with. And I don't want to give too much of it away. It's a place called Four Quarter, and it's very well written about. I mean, any listener could actually Google Four Quarter Bar and Haunted in Arkansas, and they're going to find the stories about this this prostitute who was murdered there. Um, and people see her spirit there. The part I'm not going to give away, but I'll hint at, is I tear apart that story. And it's the one most people are familiar with, if they are at all. You know, if they're familiar with any of the stories, it's that one. And then I tear down this the story, and people are like, oh, man, really? That doesn't hold water? But then I tell them about all of the unexplainable stuff that's happened there. And I am a skeptic, and I've experienced unexplainable stuff in that building. And one of the best stories about it is one of the bartenders was there at 10 o'clock in the morning. He was just putting in a water heater. They weren't even open yet. And he heard this crash, and he went out to the bar, and the bar top, the very top of it's probably 12 foot high. And there's a pot still behind beer cans. And that pot still is at the front edge of the bar in the ice bin. So it didn't just fall. It flew forward and it didn't disturb any of the beer cans. And then I tell this story and people are like, wow, that's weird. And the best part of it is they have a video camera pointing down the bar and the bar owner pulled the video. And I show that to everyone on the tour. Oh, wow. It is totally unexplainable. So that's that's my favorite story because I tell the story that everyone knows, then tear it apart and then go, but something's going on here. I don't know what. And uh, I really love that because, again, that plays to both the believers and the non-believers. You know, great. You've just torn apart this ghost story. But then the believers are like, but all this stuff happened that's unexplainable. And I just yeah. love that. I love playing that. Again, like you said, I love playing with expectations. I love that. Have you gone on the uh, the haunted tour like at the crescent hotel or any of the I any have. other ones um what do you what do you experience as somebody who has done these yourself and then goes on other ones um what, what's the compare and contrast in your mind the biggest one is just the 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 guide i mean mm. you're a personality and you're a storyteller if you if you're not a good storyteller then the tour just isn't that great you know i mean that's yeah i, I feel like you have to really set a, a place and a time where that's that's part of the fun to me with this that is the illusion part if there is one on the tour is that I'm, I'm having people look at these buildings and i have a flip book of what they looked like in the past so i'm really trying to get people to be present in a place and time and be able to envision what it was like 
Now, in the Crescent, for instance, it's a little bit easier because it looks like what it always looked like, you know? So yeah. it's a creepy old Victorian hotel. So you're present yeah. in that place and time automatically. But um, also know the guy who started those, and he's a theater guy. Mm. And, uh, you know, Keith had a background in theater. He doesn't run the tours anymore. He's yeah. he's older. But he always has the theatrical people or theater people. And that, to me, is the key to having a good ghost tour. Um, and I've done them all over. That whole thing is is basically a stage as well in, in the way that our minds work, right? Because it does look like your traditional haunted house or haunted hotel. Right. And it has this huge reputation that's already set in expectation. Exactly. You know, the most haunted hotel in the U.S., or, or I think that's the claim, if not the world, right? So it's, right. Uh, anybody that's done a slightest bit of research already has that frame set up and then they go in and you, you like read the reviews of people. They're like, as we got closer, I started to feel sick. <laughs> and so, uh -huh. um, yeah. So I, I think that that's really, really interesting to see, um, how those different environments work differently. And I, I guess for you, you kind of have the Argenta, the way that it looks now, you've got your picture book of the way that it looked back then. And you have people, um, filling in the stage, some with their minds as well. Right. As you think about and, and you may not have an answer right now, but um, would love to know if, as you think about just the topic of legend, is there a favorite legend or, or urban legend that comes to mind that uh, really resonated with you? Uh, there is, but it's something more recent. And, That's and I'll fine. explain why. It, it yeah. came about through the ghost tours. When I was doing the research for them, because I did, I mean, I wrote a book too. I've got a Haunted Argenta book that has all the stories. But I did my research, you know, through archives and old newspapers. And I found this legend that there was a werewolf in North Little Rock, uh, not far from where we do the ghost tours. Now, when I read more about it and found what I could, people claimed on multiple occasions to see this shaggy, hairy man walking, you know, kind of like wolf-like down into the swamps. There used to be swamps at the, at the base of uh, Park Hill area of North Little Rock. They would tell their kids not to go down there because the werewolf might get them. But in reality, I think it's probably because the swamps are inherently dangerous. So by using the werewolf story, you keep the kids out of danger. But where it got super interesting to me is I found another story where they said the werewolf had murdered someone. And I started going down this path and I found within a period of about 15 years, three people were murdered in the same way and their bodies dumped at almost the same location. And I took that to the history commission and said, have you guys ever found this or, or mm. recognize this? And the answer was no, we think you probably found a serial killer. And that was really exciting that that tied in wow. to the werewolf. That the werewolf story is what set me down that path. And, uh, totally coincidentally, one of my best friends, I was talking to him about this, you know, about the book while I was writing it and was telling him this story. And I said, yeah, well, this, the first girl that was killed was named Florence Shilkut. And he went, that's, that's my family because that's my mom's side of the family. What the hell? Oh. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. That is wild. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I loved that. I loved the whole story, first of all, about just the werewolf and trying yeah. to keep the kids out of the swamps. But then when it tied into the murders and I found the three different murders and, uh, I mean. Has there been any, any follow-up after that? I wrote it all up in the book is the werewolf of Cherry Hill and wrote about those murders. But, uh, I mean, they were so long ago, I don't really know you know, how they would tie anybody for sure. It was yeah. very hard to find much information about them aside from, you know, the, the newspapers back then loved to report like, oh, the neck was cut open and the body was ravaged or whatever. But as far as follow-up, arrest, or anyone tried, they didn't, they didn't write about that. It wasn't sensationalist. Yeah. So it's often hard to find the follow-ups to stories, like what happened at the end after this horrible thing. 
All right. So this is a call out to anybody that wants to start the next true crime podcast. Yeah, right. Yeah. The next Bear Brook. There you the go. Werewolf there of Cherry go. Hill. Somebody should should do a series on that and investigate it. That would that would be pretty cool. Yeah, I've got the start of it. <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting because that is it's it's sort of the root of a legend that you have uncovered because like you said, the swamps are inherently dangerous and people could just always have said that. So it's interesting to have linked that to it. And I'm I'm curious too about uh and this might this might be a a creaky segue, so step carefully across it. But um, I'm just curious how you feel about oral tradition, because in a way you're keeping that alive by doing these like ghost tours in person. And, and mm. I imagine at some point that you've you know explored that realm of things and thought about oral tradition. Oh yeah, I love it. And I think part of that is growing up, my dad's family lived in a place called Greasy Creek, Kentucky, and you know you didn't really have good TV signal. There was really nothing to do out there. We would sit on the front porch and listen to the old folks tell stories. And uh, I, I think that really just, that hit me. That was awesome. That was so foreign. You know, this was the 80s, but yet they still had an outhouse. And, you know, you'd have to draw water out of the well to take a bath. You know, it was so primitive and weird, and I loved uh. it. But the storytelling was a big part of that. And so I think that's where, I, I think stories are hugely important. I think that's our most primitive form of entertainment. And it's still a valid form of entertainment even today. And that's awesome to me. That with all of our technology, nothing can replace a good story. Uh, what a great line that is. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you to Paul Prater for spending time with us. Check out our show notes for more information about Paul, his performances, his ghost tours, and more. If you've been with us for a while and you want to know how best to help the show, it's actually pretty easy. Just go to your favorite podcast app, give us a five-star rating, and leave a review. If you have any questions, feedback, ideas for a future episode, or anything else, really, you can reach us at hello at eighthlayermedia.com. If you know an organization or you yourself would like information about sponsoring an episode, a few episodes, or an entire season, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Digital Folklore is created and produced by Eighth Layer Media. Thanks for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.